Well, good day and welcome to the online ministry for St. Augustine's Anglican Church in Inverell. My name's Matt and it's great you're watching with us today. Uh, it's been This has been prepared for Sunday the 8th of October 2023. And as we begin, hear this sentence of scripture from Isaiah 45. Thus says the Lord, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and saviour. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. Uh, we do have a great God and saviour, and it's to him that we sing our praises now.
Well, as we come to the ministry of the word, uh, let me pray. Almighty and eternal God, by whose spirit the whole body of the church is governed and sanctified, we pray now for the many different members of your holy church, that every one of them in their vocation and ministry may truly be devoted to serving you. My Father, feed us in this time, we pray. Amen. Well, our Bible readings today begin with 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through to 26. Our psalm for today is psalm number 2, and our section that we're looking at today is Daniel chapters 10 through to the end, uh, it's the end of chapter 12, uh, but you might just like to read Daniel 10, 1 to 6, then verse 14, and then read chapter 12, just to break it up uh, and just to make it simple for us, and then I'll come back and share with us from that in just a moment. Well, let me pray for our time now. Heavenly Father, guide us through your word. Help us to know you better. Help us to see the hope of heaven clearly and to cling to that, we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't like to walk into situations of life feeling unprepared. Uh, and so, for example, when I first took my wife on a date about 10 years ago, uh, I didn't want to be caught unprepared. I was taking her out in Newcastle, where she lived at the time, a place I was quite unfamiliar with, and we're going to a restaurant in a massive shopping center in a place that I was, again, quite unfamiliar with. And I didn't want to get caught being unprepared. I didn't want to have to rely on GPS or say, D, I'm lost, can you help me? And so what did I do? I turned up in town about two hours earlier than I needed to. And so I actually did a dry run of the whole day, right? I drove to her place to start with. She didn't know that. And then I drove all the way to uh, the, the car park of this restaurant, worked out which level of this car park I needed to park on. And then from there, what was the quickest way to get up, up, up through the stories to this particular Thai restaurant that I was taking her out to. And then I worked out what's the best way back down, what's the quickest way to the most direct path to the park that we're gonna go for a walk at afterwards, and then back to her place. I did all that beforehand so that I was ready for what was coming, so that I wasn't caught unprepared. Now, I must say it must have gone quite well because now we're married and we have, we have three kids together. But it's one thing to be well prepared for a date. It's another thing to be well prepared for all of life, and in fact, for eternity. I wonder how often you think about being well prepared, perhaps spiritually, because that is what Daniel chapters 10 through to 12 uh, is encouraging us to do. Now, that's the challenge, to be well prepared for all of life, but especially for eternity. Now, the question we might ask is, what are you doing to prepare wisely for the future? Now, this section is divided into three chapters, and so uh, that's essentially how we'll look at it. We'll look at this in three parts. Chapter 10, the man who prepares God's people for the future. Chapter 11, the struggles of the future. And then chapter 12, the promise of the future. That's where we're going. So, point one, chapter 10, the man who prepares God's people for the future. Now, 
As we begin to read this, it's important to note that, like last week, what we're reading here is a genre in the Bible called apocalyptic literature. Now, these are visions that are future-oriented, but they're meant to be helpful, not confusing, for God's people as they go through hard times. Now, the, the imagery here is not exact, but it's heavily symbolic, remember, like an Impressionist artwork. And if you weren't here last week, uh, I offered some helpful tips for reading apocalyptic literature, and I, I thought it'd be helpful to publish them. And so if you get our bulletin, if you're on the email list, uh, you can see I'll put those there, and I'll refer to just a couple of them again here today. Now, as we begin, look at me at verse 1. Uh, we're told that in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, Daniel, who was called Belshazzar. Its message was true and it concerned a great war. The understanding of this message came to him in a vision. Now, like last week, the opening verse here tells us where this story fits chronologically. Uh, that is, this, this actually happens somewhere after Daniel 6, maybe about two, chap two years later, uh, after he was in the lion's den. And now, that means at this stage in Israel's history, that the time of the exile is coming to a close. The 70 years is kind of up. And so, God's Old Testament people, they're heading into a new and uncharted part of history, if you like. And so, to prepare them, God gives Daniel this vision uh, as he's standing next to a river. And in verses 5 and 6, uh, Daniel sees a man, and this man has a mind-boggling appearance. Verse 5, uh, one of the notable features about him is that, like all classy men, he's wearing linen. Uh, and in reading this, some of us want to ask, who is Daniel seeing here in this vision? The man with the splendid face and the fire eyes and all these wonderful things. Who is he seeing? Well, interestingly, uh, in verse 16 here, Daniel describes him as one who looked like a man. And now, that may twig in your mind, and you may remember back to last week, chapter 7, uh, where God's promised forever king was described there as one who was like a son of man. And in this vision of Daniel 10, it actually finds its New Testament um, counterpart in Revelation chapter 1. Now in Revelation, uh, we have the Apostle John who is also having an apocalyptic vision and he hears a voice speaking to him and when he turns around, the figure he sees is almost an identical match for Daniel chapter 10. If we were to look at Revelation 1, we see that the man there is also called someone who looks like a son of man. And if we keep comparing them, uh, we find that both are clothed in linen. Both have a golden belt around their waist. Both have faces that shine brightly with eyes that have the appearance of fire. Both have extremities that look like polished bronze. And both have a magnificent roaring voice. And in John's vision in Revelation 1, it's made clear to him that the person he is seeing, it's a wonderful and faithful portrait of the risen King Jesus. And the man Daniel sees in chapter 10 here, it's the same figure. Now, it's important to remember that at this point in history, the second person of the Trinity, the Godhead, he hadn't yet taken on human form, human nature. He hadn't come into our world as the man Jesus. But what Daniel is seeing in chapter 10 is a vision of the pre-incarnate eternal Son of God. 
uh, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, he is the one who prepares God's people for the future. Uh, true for Daniel and true for us today. And he does that by saying to Daniel here in verse 14, you can see it in front of you, hopefully. He says, I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concern, concerns a time yet to come. Now, as you look at chapter 11, which hopefully is in front of you, uh, you'll notice a few things. Uh, first of all, is that it is really long. Uh, and secondly, uh, if you've even glanced at it, you'll see that it, it actually can be quite hard to follow what's going on. But what's laid out here before Daniel in chapter 11 is it's a fairly detailed account of what was going to happen in the next in that corner of the world in the next three or four hundred years, right? It's the future of the Persian and Greek kingdoms. Have a look at verses two to four with me. And Daniel's told, Now then, I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth, who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise, who will rule with great power and do as he, as he pleases. After he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out to the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, if you know anything about history, uh, you might immediately recognize that the mighty king of Greece that it's talking about here is of course Alexander the Great, who conquered that part of the world in the time in that time, and you might know how after his death, uh, his kingdom was divided into four uh, and given kind of to each of his generals. And the rest of the chapter then it basically plays out uh, the warring that goes on between two of these lines of rulers who kind of become kings. Uh, one is described as the king of the south, and the other is described as the king of the north. And chapter 11, then, is basically a bird's eye view of the next few hundred years worth of back and forth between these two with their fighting and their backstabbing. And it all climaxes in verses 29 onwards in the king of the north bringing about a great time of suffering for God's people in Jerusalem. And again, comparing this to uh, the historical record, it's not too hard to see that the climax, the, the final king of the north here, it finds its fulfillment in a guy called Antiochus IV. Right? He became ruler in about 175 BC. Uh, look at verse 31. We're told that his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then he will set up the abomination that causes desolation. And so you ask, did it happen? What did it look like? It did, yeah. In about 167 BC, Antiochus IV, he goes in and attacks Jerusalem. He's a bit of a sore loser because he got whomped by the Romans. Uh, he goes into Jerusalem and he slaughters some of the Jews. He stops them from performing their sacrifices that God um, had given them at the temple. And instead, he made them sacrifice pigs there instead, right? Hopefully you can appreciate for the Jews just how bad and abhorrent that was. Uh, not to mention, on top of that, he sets up a statue of Zeus in God's temple as well. All right? An absolute abomination. And this is why God's messenger has come to Daniel in this time. Because God's people, even though they're leaving exile out of Babylon here, 
They're about to go through some massive cultural and religious suffering in the next few centuries that were to follow. Right? Things are going to get worse for God's people and they need deliverance. But as we get to the last section of chapter 11, verse 36 onwards, I won't read it, but historically there's, there's kind of issues here because the description of this wicked king here, it seems to exceed even all the evil deeds of the blasphemous Antiochus IV. Now, even he wasn't that bad. And what's more interesting is that if we turn to the New Testament then, we get to Matthew 24, we find that Jesus himself picks up on this language and speaks about the abomination that causes desolation as if it's something yet to happen still in the future at his time. Have a listen to this, Matthew 24, verse 15. Jesus says, So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Now, if the first few verses of chapter 11 of Daniel here tell us that uh, what's, about, what's, what's being spoken about here is fulfilled in the kingdoms of Persia and Greece... Why does Jesus speak about it as if it's something that's still going to happen? Well, if you remember one of my tips last week for how to read apocalyptic literature, uh, all of a sudden the path through the trees suddenly becomes a little less difficult. I mean, last week I said that as we read apocalyptic visions, uh, one of the things we need to remember is that although they do often point with a kind of future emphasis, future orientation, they are often multiple points of fulfillment. Are you with me? So, uh, what if the predicted suffering of God's people that they were going to enjoy here, what if it wasn't just a one-off event fulfilled through Antiochus IV in Jerusalem? But it's actually an example and pattern of the suffering that God's people will endure throughout all of life, no matter when or where they live. That is... Even if the details here clearly point us to a guy in history like Antiochus IV as its immediate fulfilment, there will always be many evil kings, or rulers, or nations, or groups, or individuals who come and go, who embody what the writers of the New Testament call the spirit of the Antichrist. Now those who hand God's people, those who, sorry, who's at their hand, God's people will continue to suffer. Right? True for Daniel's time. It's true today, and it will keep being true into the future. Now, I think that also helps us make a bit, a bit better sense of the way that chapter 11 finishes off, seems to be anchored in a few hundred years BC, and then chapter 12 picks up describing something that feels like are the very last days of the world when God will come again. So, with God's messenger, seemingly establishing this kind of promised pattern of suffering, and this need, this continual need of deliverance, let's now jump to chapter 12. So we come to chapter 12, verse 1, and we read, the messenger says, this pre-incarnate eternal son says, at the time, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. All right, sounds familiar with Jesus, Matthew 24 as well. But notice here that 
it does speak of this kind of moment of climax of distress. And again, interestingly, Daniel points us forward. So does Jesus. And then so does the book of Revelation many times. It all sounds quite similar. But it's not only going to be a time of distress coming. Look, midway through verse 1, Daniel's also told, but, after that distress, but at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. There's going to be deliverance. What does that deliverance look like? Well, continue on, verse 2 and 3. We're told that multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to everlasting shame and contempt. Now, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, what does God's messenger say deliverance looks like? It looks like resurrection. But you notice here that there are two types of resurrection mentioned. Some are resurrected to eternal life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And I think at this point, as we talk about resurrection, this is where our world would, would trip. But this is, this is where they, there's a bit of a disconnect. Uh, if I was to go down the street, I think there would be a bit, bit of pushback here. Uh, it might, people might say that it sounds like nonsense. But even just in speaking about the idea of resurrection, we're reminded of the universal problem that every single one of us faces. The problem of our own mortality. Because just as surely as we are born, every single person is going to die. We know that. But here, God promises in Daniel chapter 12 that death is not the end. Do you believe that? But since this is a promise of the future given to Daniel, uh, the question which should be obvious then is, when will all these things happen? Uh, That's the question that's asked in verse 6. How long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? In other words, how long is this time of suffering going to be for God's people? And the answer the messenger gives, God's messenger gives, is in verse 7. It will be for a time, times, and half a time which is a super clear and helpful answer. Not. Uh, And so no wonder Daniel says in verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. So I asked, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And God's messenger in the vision responds again, verse 11. From the time the daily sacrifice is abolished and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. Again, another clear and super helpful explanation. Not, right? It feels like, for me, like the kind of confusing answer that my three-year-old Knox would give when asked a simple question. Hey, mate, when did you last go to the toilet? And you get all these contradicting answers. No, mate, no. Now, as we look at the answers, even in both cases... As hard as we or or Bible commentators might try, uh, there is no one way to make sense of it all and reconcile everything together perfectly. But that's not to say that we can't make any sense of it, because as we look at the number of days in verses 11 and 12, they both roughly come out to a little over three three and a half years. And another another way of translating 
time times and half a time is one year, two years, and half a year, which is also three and a half years. Which, by the way, as we get to the book of Revelation, that three and a half kind of period, whatever it is, days or years, uh, comes to represent uh, an indefinite time of suffering of God's people there. But then how do we relate this back to, to chapter 11 with what we've just read? Well, from the time that Antiochus IV defiled the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and he stopped the sacrifices in uh, 167 BC, nothing again was allowed to be sacrificed until 164 BC, which is it ends up being a little over three and a half years. And so we might get excited and say, well, look, there, there seems to be a kind of resurrection in 164 BC when the sacrifices were resurrected. But hopefully with me, you'll say that sounds like a rather kind of lame fulfillment of this great promise picture we're given in Daniel 12 of resurrection. And there wasn't any kind of mass resurrection like this back then. But remember our good old friend of apocalyptic literature, that good old multiple horizons of fulfillment. Now, what's going on here is that this is actually pointing us forward to then a greater fulfillment of resurrection. And I want to suggest two places where we see that play out. First of all, we see it as Jesus himself, after he was crucified on the cross. Now, God brought him out of the tomb. God vindicated him. He walked out. The tomb was empty, brought him back to life. This is the true and genuine moment of resurrection when we look at the man, Jesus. And the promise of the Bible is that for those of us who put our faith in him and what his death achieved on the cross to forgive our sins, if our faith is in him, then his resurrection is the guarantee of our own as well on the last day. As 1 Corinthians says, it's the guarantee that we too will have a resurrection like his. And then that takes us to the second place where we see this great moment of resurrection fulfilled. And that is the ultimate resurrection when Jesus will come again, his second coming, when all people will be raised, as we're told in Daniel 12, verse 2. But again, remember that there are two types of resurrection here. Uh, one group of people will be raised to everlasting life, and the others will be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. You know, one of these is a picture of being united to the life-giving presence of God for all of eternity, and the other is a picture of being cut off from this God and his life-giving presence. Where instead of Jesus bearing the weight of our sin, we bear the weight of that for eternity. Now at this point, some of you may be thinking, that second one sounds awful. I don't want to be anywhere near that. I want the first type of, I want the first type of resurrection. I want eternal life with Jesus. What do I need to do for that to be true for me? And the answer that the messenger gives us uh, we see part of it in verse 1. He says, the answer is, it's those whose names are written in the book. And we see a corresponding answer in verse 3. Those people are described as the wise. And now, hopefully you read uh, the psalm reading that I, I told us about um, earlier. If you did, you might have noticed how at the very end of Psalm 2, uh, in verse 10, the writer there calls people to be wise. 
And what does being wise look like in the context of God's just judgment of our, of our rebellion? Being wise means clinging to the Son, taking refuge, as Psalm 2 puts it, in God's Son. And that's right. Taking refuge in the Son is how our names are written in the book. That's how we go from being spiritually dead, cut off, destined for a resurrection of everlasting shame and contempt. That's how we go from that to being spiritually alive, destined to everlasting life. The answer to the question that we started with, how do we prepare well for the future? Well, the answer is act wisely and cling to Jesus. Cling to the eternal son who came into the world for us. The one who gave up his life for you. The one whose new resurrection life, as 1 Corinthians 15 puts it, is the guarantee of our own. Right? This is not a promise that you'll live your best life now either. That you have everything you could ever dream of. And in fact, it's the opposite. It's a promise that if you give up your life for Jesus, if you stop living for yourself and make him Lord, King, Saviour, then this life will be hard. You'll even suffer for the name of Jesus. But the result will be a resurrection to everlasting life. Suffer now and glory later. Now this was the promise that Daniel and the other Jews needed to hear. And it's a promise that we needed to be, re- need to be reminded of as well. And now as we finish here, Uh, both for today and for our series as as a whole in the book of Daniel, let me offer two final points of application because there'll be two people watching as we we record this. Uh, You might be watching here and you know in your heart that you've never actually stopped. You've never paused to accept God's invitation of forgiveness of sins through Jesus. You never stopped to accept his offer of eternal life. Now, if that's you, I want to encourage you not to let today pass by and think that you'll worry about it at some other time. Now make today the day when you stop and pray and say, thank you, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me to take away my sin. And ask him into your life to be saviour and to be Lord. Now there is no better decision that you could make in life. There is no better way that you could be preparing for the future. If you're in that boat, then do that today. And if you do, I would love to hear about it. Reach out, get in touch with us. Uh, We want to support you in making that amazing decision. But I'm aware that for most people, uh, perhaps watching, that you might have already made that decision, perhaps recently, perhaps a long time ago. And if that's you, uh, let this be a reminder from Daniel 12. Let it be an encouragement to persevere. Because we know for certain that nothing we face in this life will compare with the glory that God has in store for us in heaven, for that eternal life that awaits. That awaits. And so we need to let ourselves be continually captured by this vision and let it keep us anchored to him and our hope for the future. Because whenever we face seemingly unsurmountable problems in life, whenever we face pain or suffering, whenever we experience hardship, and especially hardship for the sake of Jesus' name, And whenever we wonder whether our faith is really worth all that it costs us, this is the thing to cling to. This is the thing that will spur us on in perseverance.
And so I hope that the book of Daniel then has been an encouragement for you to lift your eyes to heaven, to know that Jesus is risen and he's seated on the throne with the Father. And I hope that this has been an encouragement for you to keep living faithfully, even under pressure. And we can do that because we have a great King and Saviour who is faithful and gives us this great promise. And so we can say then, with the Apostle Paul, these words from Romans 8.18, we can say, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Amen. in the coming wrong.
Let's go now to a time of prayer. Plenty of things to give thanks for. Plenty, of, plenty of things to be bringing before our great and great heavenly Father. Uh, the blue screen will come up. Uh, use those to spur you on in your prayers. Uh, use the bulletin if you have it, and be praying for things that are happening uh, locally, things around the world, things within our church. Um, after we have a time of prayer, then we'll have a final time of praise.
As we finish, let me give you this final encouragement from 1 Corinthians 15, from verse 20. Paul says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ, the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Uh, friends, I hope you've been encouraged today. Go in peace. We'll see you next time.